Judeo community in Rome hit the international headlines in 1990 when it brokered the peace deal which brought the 16-year-long civil war in Mozambique to an end. But this lay Christian community is known locally as much for its work with the poor as for its peace initiatives. It was founded in 1968 by a schoolboy and there are now nearly 17,000 members worldwide. Two of them, Claudio Betti and Monica Athias, told me how they got involved. Well, I was in, at, at secondary school in 1977, which was a, a very hot year under the point of view of the uh, political involvement. It, it was a bit like 1968 in Italy. In, in the 77, there was another student revolt, we can say. And my school was, um, um, how would you say, taken over by the students and the teachers were sent away <laughs> and for a week there was a self-management of the school and the students were organizing lectures on various subjects and some members of the community in my school organized a lecture on the poverty in Rome and I joined it. I was not a practicing Christian, not at all, as more, most of my schoolmates were not. And, uh, but I was attracted by these young people who knew such uh, this, uh, many things about the reality in Rome. And I joined them and we went uh, to work in, um, with the children of the immigrants from the south of Italy in a poor area of Rome. And when I, I, was, when I went back home and I told my parents, I have been to that area, they were <laughs> scared because, of course, nobody would go there because uh, you have to be careful and all that. But I discovered that many things that uh, were said about that area were not true, uh, that the people living there were not monsters or <laughs> difficult people. And so we started helping the kids there. And for me, it was like discovering a new world that really I didn't know at all. And uh, then the friend, my friends in the community invited them to join them in the prayer. And that was also something completely new for me because, uh, well, um, I didn't have an idea of how the, the gospel could be put into practice. And, um, but I liked that way, a very straight way to speak about Jesus and what was Jesus asking us from our life. And, uh, and so in this way, I be became more and more involved. And now after 15 years, I'm still here. <laughs> well, it was way back in 1971. I was, uh, there was a friend of mine, a classmate of mine, uh, who invited me to help poor children to do their homework in the afternoon. I went with him and uh, I liked it very much. And at the end of the, of the afternoon, we, went, we met together with some others who were helping the children as well. And we started praying together, reading the gospel and explaining the gospel. And uh, that was uh, how I got involved. Would you have described yourself as a very religious person? Oh, as you, you were a 14-year-old then? I was 14-year-old and it, I was definitely non-religious at all. Uh, I would say I, I had my own religiosity, uh, pantheistic more than anything else, <laughs> but uh, no evangelical formation at all. I never went to church before. What caught you about what you were doing that made you want to continue? Well, the first thing, well, I cannot, I cannot remember really what caused me then. I would say 
I liked it. <laughs> I cannot really say much more than that. I liked the, the way people were working with the poor. I liked the way they were reading the gospel. And I liked the friendship that existed among those people, and uh, which became immediately a friendship with me as well. And uh, that, that was what, what really hit me at the first time. And I think it hits me every time. And that spirit of friendship was what struck Irish Carmelite Michal O'Neill when members of his order in Rome were invited to an anniversary celebration by the San Egidio community. So then two of us from the community went to the, to the celebration of the Mass. It was, it was uh, a Mass celebrated down in Santa Maria in Trastevere. And we went in and we were part of the Mass. And on our way out, we were, we were greeted, I suppose you'd say, by one of the community. Gina was her name. But it was the warmth of the greeting and the fact that she there and then invited us back to the centre of the community, Santa Gidio itself, for a reception afterwards. So we went along, and on the basis of that, really, I, I began to go back to the prayer and um, began to get to know them a little more and find out what they do. And then when I discovered that they, they ran this um, centre where they, they give out meals, um, four times a week, I thought that might be a nice way to get involved. I suppose also I was charmed somewhat by their story, the whole story of these young people, three or four young people, back in, 19, in the great 1968, um, coming together because one of them, who's now regarded as the founder, Andrea Di Ricardo, was a person who, as a, as a teenager, used to read the Bible and he got his, his friends in school to read the Bible with him. And it's just growing up from that. I cannot tell you what it's all about because it, is, uh, because it cannot be summarized. I would say I, I can tell you some lines of the spirituality and life of the community, uh, which is probably... Uh, the desire of living the gospel as the first communities have lived uh, with three major pillars of uh, spirituality one would be one continuous uh, reference to the word of God as the true source of our life uh, another pillar would be the service to the poor and the third pillar would be uh, fraternity or sorority uh, among the members and with the poor. And another thing that I remember commenting to, to one of our own fellows, standing outside the church on that day of the, the birthday, the very first um, encounter with them, and in similar situations afterwards, you see this throng of young people, young, between 20 and 30, let's say, the, the majority of them, and um, you're, we, we would be inclined to say that Twenty years ago, those people are precisely the kind of people who would be joining religious orders. And now they're, they're in a community like Sant'Egidio. So obviously we're looking at a whole number, a whole series of different ways of doing the same sort of thing that I think religious orders set out to do in the past. The other aspect was when I got to know the, the food centre or where, where, they, where they give the, the, the meals each day, uh, um, I was... I was struck by the tremendous efficiency of this group that they and then little by little I began to discover more and more of their activities 
We are entering now the soup kitchen that the community of Sant'Egidio is running in the court in the district of Trastevere. And it is a place where daily between 1,500 and 1,800 people come to have a, a dinner. At this moment, the soup kitchen uh, today, we have already served 1,235 people. And as you see, the place is full still. Where do these people come from? Uh, most of them come, uh, come from uh, Eastern European countries. Uh, not necessarily former uh, Soviet Union, but I'm talking about former Yugoslavia or uh, um, Albania and uh, other countries of, of, of the East. Uh, that's the reason for this is that most of the black people were, are, are stopped before they enter Italy. Uh, the new European Community Agreements, uh, one of them is going to take to, to keep out all the black people and those who come from third world countries. What about Italians? Are there Italians? There are some Italians. It's not a big number. I would say about 25% of the total group. We are now entering the main dining room uh, of the soup kitchen. We are, and uh, and uh, as you see, it's uh, made up of tables, uh, where we, a, six or eight people each, and uh, they are all served at table. Uh, another thing that you might notice is that there are very few women here and mostly because people who are here come here to work while their families are still at home. Given that a lot of the people who come from abroad are illegal, what are your relations like with the police locally? Well, uh, we, tried, we, have, we have established a kind of truce with the police in the sense that we try not to create problems uh, here and they try not to create problems to us. Uh, that's, that's also the reason why most of the most of the, uh, we, we have to have a rather strict rule here. Uh, nothing serious can happen here because otherwise the police would come and uh, most of the people would have to be taken to prison. How do you organize the, the tickets? Uh, they, they need to have a, a card, every one of the, with their pictures and their name on. And this card is used for a various number of, of, of reasons and one of them is to enter here to have food. People can come here without a card for three times. After the third time, they need to receive to have a card. With a the card, they come here, they sign, and they sign up, and then they can enter with the, 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 the meal. And what information do you keep on the card? The information we keep on the card is just the names, with no address, no other reference, so that uh, it is not a doc document and the police cannot uh, do anything with it. Do you ever have problems here with the people? Yeah, we do. Uh, I must tell one thing. I must tell you one thing. The director of this soup kitchen, Francesca, the one here, is, is, is a woman, <laughs> you can see. And Francesca is very, very strict. And um, we, we have problems, but normally we're always, we've always been able to stop the problems and to, at, at the beginning. How do you keep control of such a large number of people? Through friendship. Uh, the main uh, the main thing is the fact that uh, we have to get in this is not just a, a service where people receive something but it, it's it's a place where they come and they all know us and they all know francesca and they all know the people who are here every day so the friendship is the main uh, the main way of keeping control of this place they accept our regulations because we are their friends not not because we give them things is it entirely run on voluntary labour? Or is, is there anybody full-time? No, it's entirely run on voluntary labour.
there are no full-time workers. No full-time workers in the whole community, and not here as well. This is a store for clothes, uh, shoes, um, foods and medicines for the poor. Because uh, twice a week at the soup kitchen, uh, we have a center where during all day people come to take uh, uh, things that they need. And uh, there is a team of very young people of the community, uh, aged uh, 14, 15, 16, like this. And they come regularly to, to work here. They prepare the clothes, uh, they wash it, and they, yes, they prepare it to be given to the people. And, um, and then uh, we give it uh, on, in these centers that we have uh, at the soup kitchen. And that's very important because most, most of the people who come at the soup kitchen uh, live on the streets. And uh, the soup kitchen is open just three days a week, but we have to give them the necessary things to also to survive during the other days. You mentioned that young people, 14 and 15 year olds, do the work here. Do you have many teenagers working? Yes, because the community was born in a secondary school. And so, there, ha there has always been a presence of the community within the secondary school. And uh, we, what we propose to these young people is not just uh, a place, a club where you can find friends, but it's actually the, the entire message of the gospel. So that uh, you're young, you're privileged because you're a student, and there is a debt in front of the poor, and we have to fill this gap there is a, uh, between the world of the rich and the world of the poor. I asked Claudio why the community put such emphasis on the importance of working with the poor. If you take the gospel, uh, it all talks about the, world, the life of Jesus with his disciples, the life of Jesus with his father, and the life of Jesus with the poor. If we want to be Christians, we cannot avoid this part. It would be a little... I know that there are ten temptations of doing only one thing, but if we want to be truly Christians, the poor have to be there, cannot be skipped over. And when we speak about the poor, uh, I think uh, most of all the condition of women in the poor areas. Sometimes we meet in the poor areas where the high-raised flats uh, are... Uh, young women who are 20, 22, and they have already two or three children, Maybe they haven't been to school, or they work very hard. So life completely different from uh, uh, the life of a middle-class student. And but our question was uh, how to how to announce the gospel to to these people, or maybe the unemployed uh, men, uh, or people who, who had a very harder life than we had, and. Uh, the challenge was, if our way of life is not uh, valuable also for them, it means that it, there is something wrong. The community must be a way for all. So we tried to build up communities in the poor areas. And at the beginning, it was very difficult uh, because uh, these people, uh, the people living in those areas that are often abandoned by the rest of the city, no services, no trams, no shops, um, and uh, they were thinking, we have been abandoned. Now you come here and you t talk to me about the gospel. What do you want? Uh, you're, you're rich, uh, you have everything you need. How can you teach me how to live? 
I'm more suffering than Jesus himself. Little by little, one by conquering one by one, we formed these groups of first of women and then later on also of men, uh, of talking about the gospel together and uh, living a community life, uh, even though their life is so hard and so full of difficulties. And now among these groups, there are women that uh, have taken the responsibility themselves to preach the gospel to others and to sensitize other women on the problems of those who are poorer than them. For example, in the poor areas, there are many gypsy camps and the poor, the Italians, they are living there, they are very racist. They hate these gypsies because they, they ruin the image of the, their neighborhood and so on. And, and uh, these women have, have learned how to defend the gypsies from the attacks, the racist attacks of, uh, of the other citizens. And that's a very important conscience. So can you just tell me, how do you overcome the opposition that people feel when you go into these areas? How do you make them feel the importance of the gospel? I think that uh, that was uh, overcome by the personal relationship which each one of these women, because their mistrust was due to the fact that uh, it was true that uh, many, for example, many political groups uh, or many, well, sometimes there are missions of the church uh, and uh, they involved the poor in uh, fights uh, against, uh, um, well, I don't know, political fights or on the church side uh, in activities within the church, and then they disappear. And so their mistrust sometimes was right. <laughs> so the fact that we have been faithful, that we have continued to go, and the gospel becomes true through the faithful, the mutant, of people. So, but uh, the most important thing is that the word of God has a power in itself. We, we always, it has been like this for us. Uh, and we think how difficult it was to convert our life, uh, stubborn, uh, wealthy people <laughs> who just think about themselves. And the word of God has a, had a great power for us. And the same was for these uh, people who were less privileged. The, the, we believe that the, really the Word of God can change totally the life of people. You know, among the, 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 the striking things and the new things that, that people see when they go to Santa Gidio prayer is the whole notion of um, the members themselves preaching, that they don't have uh, priests preaching. And so they've got over those, those limitations in the, in the, in the, that are in the wider church. And as you listen to the, the way they preach you, you become very aware of how strong the theme of the Word of God is in, in, in their spirituality. I, I would say it's, the cent it's central. Uh, the Eucharist and the prayer is, uh, is, the, is the central part of our life. Uh, I, I said it before. We, we, uh, if we have to define ourselves, we are the people, people of the Scriptures. And the reading of the Scripture both in the community way and personal way, is the, is the only way to make this community grow. By the way, it's also the only way I myself can grow and become a different person and become a different Christian. So I would say, but more, even more than this, petition prayer is important. 
uh, in the sense that we are, it's important that we sit down and we pray for someone or for some situation or for some countries. Because we believe in the power of prayer. There where we cannot go with our hands, and there are unfortunately so many places where we cannot go and where our feet cannot arrive, we can arrive with prayer. And that gives hope also to many people, especially many of our old people, who have uh, no strength to go out and work, but we have a lot of faith to, to pray. start our our tour of this church which is not a very large tour uh, because it's a small church by shown by speaking about these two altars which are the two altars that we meet uh, just after the entrance of the church one is on the right and the other is on the left the one on the right is the altar of the poor and you can see a wall a brick walls with a closed doors in uh, in, in front Behind this uh, brick wall and closed doors, there are the pictures of the poor of the city and of the poor of the world. This altar represents the presence of the poor in the prayer of the community. On, on, the, on the wall, it's written on, with red paint uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John. He came among his people, but his people didn't welcome him, and the word became flesh and came to dwell among us. Uh, at the beginning, this wall, this altar, was created as a crib. And, uh, and on Christmas day, on Christmas time, we put the baby just under the door, just below the door, so that to, to tell that all the poor are not welcomed. As Jesus was not welcomed when he was, when he was a child, the poor are not welcomed. And, and there are the poor of the city, the homeless, uh, the sick, the old people, and the poor of the world. The statue just in front of the balaustra is a statue that comes from Mozambique and represents hunger. And uh, these two books you see here, one of them is very large, the other is a little bit thinner. They contain the history of uh, poor people or members of our community who have died. And uh, whenever a person of the community or a poor person dies, we write a history and, uh, and we put it in, inside these books, which are kept in the church as to mean that death is not the last word in the life of a Christian. Just opposite to this altar, we have the altar of the sacrament. Um, it is, uh, uh, we intentionally put the sacrament here in order to signify that the body of Christ has two values. One is in the poor and the other is in the Eucharistie. So the mystical body of Christ and the concrete body of Christ in the poor. Then we go on and, uh, and of course we meet the altar here. Uh, just up these two stairs, these two little steps. And the altar is placed here uh, because, uh, so that it can be a community altar. You can see on, on, there are people sitting be, be, beyond the altar and people sitting down here. And the altar, too, has some, very, some important uh, signs of our community life. This stone, for example, it's a red stone that some members of our community found in a... a desecrated um, cemetery in Armenia. And we introduced this uh, little red stone uh, on the day of the Holocaust of the Armenians. 
And in this church, every, uh, we remember the three great holocausts of, uh, of the 20th century, the Armenians, the Jews, and the Cambodians. But we have to continue. And another thing, on the left of the altar, looking at the altar on the left, we see the, that very strange statue. It's a strange statue of Jesus, uh, a Jesus without hands. It's a crucifix, but without a cross. And, um, and we picked it up because we believe that uh, uh, the community gathered for prayer has to find itself under the feet of a powerless God. And uh, there is a mystery in, uh, uh, in, in, in praying to a totally powerless God. And it's so powerless, powerless that he doesn't even have hands. And the community and the church have to be the hands of Christ. There is a progression, as you can see, the poor, the altars, the Christ. And then we, we go on. We can see, we can see the reading stool, uh, which is the place where the Word of God is proclaimed from. And uh, uh, as you can see in the reading stool, there is an icon of the tree of life, meaning that uh, wherever the Word of God is preached, life grows, and that the real foundation of every community is the gospel. Now, uh, after the, the reading stool, we have uh, what it was the former main altar, which is turned uh, away from the people as a, before the council. This is an old church. Uh, here we have uh, put Bibles in all languages. I think we have more than 120 Bibles in different languages. They are gifts from our friends, friends from all over the world who come here and who have understood the real uh, heart of our community, which is the Word of God. And behind the Bibles, there is a very beautiful icon of the face of Christ. Icons are very prominent in the church. Why do you have so many of them? What's the significance? Well, um, you, if you look at that icon, for example, it, 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 it appears very clearly why. If you look at the face of Christ, you don't only see the face of Christ, but you see old theology in, in the face. Um, a face is much more expressive than, than the statues, which are normal in the Latin uh, churches. And I must say, we have been fascinated by this expressivity of icons, which, are, which say much more than what they are. And, for ex and especially in, our poor, in the poor areas where the community has been growing, icons are very important because the, after you, you introduce an icon in the church, you don't need to tell much more. And they're they're a, a, a painted preaching of the gospel. So you really are trying to bring together in the church itself representations of, of as many strands of religion as possible? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, uh, the, the problem is that, the, especially this church, is the heart of the community. And here it has all, kind, all different spiritual meanings have to be represented. Uh, we are trying to pick up the, the loose ends uh, and to to continue to live what has been lost in the church and often has been lost. Like, for example, the, the, the feeling of mystery. You have seen our, our churches. Also, the lightning, lighting of the church uh, um, forces reflection. is a, is a very um, soft but reflective so that the church becomes a place of reflection of, and of prayer.
when they began to explain that they're basically about prayer and community, or prayer and hospitality, they say. Prayer and hospitality and service of the poor. Well, as long as I've been uh, working on the, the General Council and at these meetings of the Carmelites, I've heard the Carmelites talking about themselves as being basically about contemplation, fraternity, and um, prophetic presence in the world, which is mighty close to prayer, hospitality, and, uh, and service of the poor. And that struck me tremendously. And then uh, it just seemed not to be without significance the fact that when they got their first house in Rome, given to them by Cardinal Poletti at that time, it turned out to be an abandoned Carmelite monastery. And this uh, is the center of the community. I can say, it, it, while the churches are hard, this place is our mother house, if we want to make it uh, clearer. And, and it's the place where the community gathers. We also have a kitchen. That is the place where <laughs> the kitchen we prepare our meals. <laughs> but uh, it, it is important, I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, it is important because one of the main aspects of the community is hospitality. And uh, often cooking, of, cooking food mm -hmm. for our guests is an important uh, aspect of our, mm -hmm. of our life. Uh, we often have guests here. And uh, this kitchen was essential during the peace talks for Mozambique. You know, we, we have held peace talks for Mozambique in this building for two years. Fifteen people, five uh, from the government, five from the guerrilla, and five uh, from, of, of us and the uh, Mozambican church gathered, uh, we were the mediators, gathered here uh, in order to find a way to solve the conflict in Mozambique. And the kitchen was essential because we, we prepared the food. <laughs> but without, no joke, uh, the, 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 the peace talks from Mozambique were something very important for our community. They have shown that uh, Christians can do something when they really want, that they are much more free than governments, and that the, the diplomacy of love and friendship is sometimes much more effective than the diplomacy of gunships or, or weapons or economical power. How did your community get involved in those talks? How did you become the mediators? Uh, it's a long story. We, we were involved in Mozambique since 1978, and we've always helped the Church of Mozambique in order to show the government, which was a communist government, that the church was not an anti-national entity, but it was uh, concerned of the well-being of the people and of the state. Uh, helping the church has brought us a considerable uh, understanding also from the government. And uh, when there was the possibility, when there was the need of stopping this war, we were the first one to be asked. And the government and the church asked us to contact the guerrilla that we did, and uh, we started in 1990 here in Sant'Egidio itself with a first meeting between the two delegations. And after two years of talks, which were ups and, with the ups and downs, we, we finally signed the peace agreement, which is already in uh, working for a whole year. How central to the work of the Sant'Egidio community is that sort of work, that work of mediation and reconciliation? Oh, well, I would say very central. It is. Uh, it is not something which just sprang, sprang out of at the end or something which is uh, at, uh, atypical of our experience. It is a natural 
uh, end of a process of love for the poor. I mean, it comes directly from our daily commitment with, to the poor here in Rome and all over. Uh, to make, make it uh, very concrete in Mozambique, uh, we were pumping money and goods in Mozambique and no one was receiving it because there was no way to bring the food that we were carrying in from the, the arbor to the places where the food was needed. And the only real only way of stopping and of helping Mozambique was that of having peace. And so we tried to do something. And that, that's how peace, the peace talks in Mozambique came about. But also, but I, I believe that the, the, the peace, the work for peace is an essential work of our community. It is deeply and rooted inside our vocation and our spirituality. I believe that this is one of the is part, a uh, uh, natural part of the vocation of the Christians. cannot be taken away. What other initiatives have you taken? I mean, I don't not, I'm not expecting anything as dramatic as Mozambique, but what other sort of work in that area have you been involved with? Well, the first thing is the prayer for peace. Uh, as you know, in 1986, the Pope has convened a gathering of all religious leaders to pray for peace in the world. And uh, we believe that that was indeed one of the most prophetic signs of this pontificate, and surely prophetic for all the world. And we believe that this would be important, would have been important to continue this uh, initiative, and we did. So every, every year after 1986, uh, the community organizes a meeting of religious leaders from all over the world to, to stay together for two or three days, to, to, um, to speak together, to discuss about peace. And at the end, uh, all the religious leaders would pray uh, next one another. I'm not, not together, that's very important, but uh, uh, in, in the same period, each one according to his religion, but they, they all would pray for peace. And they would gather at the end, all together this time, to sign a common appeal to peace. In this year in Milan, we had uh, one, an international meeting of prayer for peace, together with Cardinal Martini from Milan. And uh, uh, the representatives that came, the religious leaders that came, were not uh, people who are used to dialogue to the, with the others. One of the representatives uh, was um, the chief rabbi of Israel that uh, you may consider a very, uh, what do we say, well, very strong in his faith, of course. Uh, and there were a lot of uh, representatives from the Muslim fundamentalism. But the dialogue must not be done just among the people who are, who are in, involved in this uh, sector. The dialogue must be done between people who are different. Uh, and there is a um, more pressure, more urgency uh, to dialogue among uh, those who are different, not among those who have already something in, in common. We know that this is not something easy, and uh, sometimes it's also criticized uh, because it seems that if you dialogue with the other religions, you give up a piece of your faith. But uh, we believe that it's in the gospel of itself, the vocation to the dialogue. Well, we always say that uh, the more we dig into our own tradition, the more we are able to understand and love the others. Uh, but. Nevertheless, we need to be very strongly rooted in our tradition. Otherwise, it would be syncretism. In this way, it can be a true dialogue. Otherwise, we would just pick up things from others without knowing why. Or uh, today, in this way, we are 
we are able to realize uh, a true dialogue starting from our own position and understanding the position of the others. The community has an official standing now within the Catholic Church under canon law. Does that mean that it's specifically a Catholic community? It is. It, it means that it's recognized by the Catholic Church. We also have members who are not Catholics, though, especially in Germany and in, uh, in Belgium, in the country where Catholics are, are not the, the majority. But it's, uh, I would say, 90% Catholic. We address, however, also to all, everybody. It doesn't necessarily have to be, our, our message is a, is a Christian message, is not only a Catholic message. However, the community is a Catholic community, and it has a Catholic liturgy, and it has, and it, it feels, it wants to be deeply rooted in the path of the Catholic Church. But that doesn't mean that we cannot be open to others. On the contrary, the fact of being totally Catholics means that we are more free and more open to the rest. When you talk about evangelization as being one of the key parts of your work, is that a matter of going out converting people? Mm. I knew when I used this word, I knew that it might create some uh, misunderstanding. No, I don't think that is the way we intend it. Uh, again, we have to go back to the scripture. Evangelization, the spreading of the gospel, was not uh, immediately a way of converting people, but was preaching the good news. And that is what it's our, uh, the term evangelization means for us, preaching the good news. So you can preach uh, through one, our own life, you can preach uh, by reading the gospel, you can preach by explaining the gospel, and you can preach also to others who are non-Christian, in the sense that you can witness your Christianity also to those who are non-Christian, not Christians. So it is not um, converting, but... If people want, we, we have not, nothing against it. For you, then, what is community? I mean, how do you make community? You, live, you all have your own jobs, oh, yeah, you live okay. family lives. That is the simple, as simple as that, yes. <coughs> well, community life is a life. Uh, so it means that it's a complete experience of life. We often say that we are not ordinary people or people who work who in their free time are members of the community but the opposite way around uh, we are members of the community we live in community and then we work we have a family we have children we are we are totally ordinary people who have a primacy in their life the primacy of the world of God and of our common life and of the poor and uh, at the beginning, when the community started, it was a community of young, young middle-class people. And everybody was saying to us, oh, you will see, now it's like a dream, uh, you hope in the future, but when you will get married, when you will have your own family, this dream can't uh, go on, because uh, there is a reality of life which is more important. and." Uh, and we were saying, no, it's not possible that you stop to be a Christian when you get married. <laughs> and uh, so the history uh, gave, uh, said that we were right in some way. So it just goes on and on. It's, it's, it's been a good experience. It's been an experience of, of um, being with people who are, who are just so committed, who to me have simplified an awful lot of the things that I think others of us have complicated. 
Like it just seems so simple. Their dedication to prayer, their dedication to hospitality or just care for one another, and then this tremendous consciousness of the poor. And the Sandy Gidio community has now come to Ireland. Rathmines curate, Father Jim Caffrey, is involved with a small group of young people who are trying to live the community way here. I'm attracted to it because I saw it in action. I saw it in Rome, I've seen it work, and I know that it's a new and exciting model. I'm also attracted to it because it has, at its very basis, the the Word of God. Um, I think that's a very important starting point. But it's not a prayer group, or is it a self-help group. It's a group that tries to live the Word of God. So therefore the whole uh, notion of the service of the poor is so central and so important to the life of the community. One would have thought we had enough organisations in Ireland, lay and clerical and other organisations connected with the church. Why do you think it's important to bring this particular one in? I think that it's very important to understand from my own experience that this isn't another organisation. This is a particular way of living the gospel that's an invitation for those who might feel that they like to take it. Um, It's not just another parish organisation. In fact, it's not a parish organisation. It's more diocesan and it's more inter-parish. And um, it has the strength of inviting people to live the gospel in a deeper way and in a, a more committed way. I've been involved in different types of youth work since I was ordained 13 years ago and I, I enjoy and I love working with young people. But it's becoming clearer to me that a lot of the work that I've been doing anyway, um, it's a little bit about keeping young people entertained. But this is saying, why not live your life in this way and why not live it together? And so that this model, for me, instead of trying to entertain young people or even amuse them, it's saying there is a gospel vision that will cost you and do you want to be part of it?